Lord, we just, uh, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy. Your mercy that is, has been evident throughout human history. And even now, we, we are reminded of the amazing way you have to step into the areas in our lives that, that need your healing touch and need your life-giving spirit. And, um, and we've gathered here this, this morning. We've made an intention of uh, making space in our lives to hear your word and to give you access. And so I pray that as we get to listen in on a conversation you have with those you love, that you would help us open our hearts and our minds to you. And perhaps there's a conversation you may want to have with us at the same time. And so we ask for your, your spirit, your, your joy to remain here, your blessing over this time. And we ask for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Transforming life. We are uh, looking at the end of the Gospel of John. John has been the, the, the lens by which we've been walking this series out, this theme, this idea that God longs to transform us through everything Jesus uh, did and said. And, um, you know, here's the thing about John. And in terms of uh, how we're going to approach this, see, beginnings and endings matter, especially in terms of an an authorial piece, a written piece that is written. How something is begun and how something ends, it, in some ways, it summarizes the whole point of everything that's in between. And it's no different with John. John, we're going to look at the end of John's gospel, how he chooses to highlight a couple things that, in my opinion, they create a statement for everything Jesus came to say and do. They represent his ministry and his life in a pretty spectacular way. And I think we're going we're gonna to receive it in a pretty, uh, I think it's going to be a blessing. But why don't we go ahead and open up our handouts and we'll just jump into it in verse 1 in John 21. And it says here, John says this, Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. So he's telling us. Jesus appeared by the Sea of Galilee, and, and what's about to unravel, this is, this is everything that occurred. Which his, the people that would receive this first account would have immediately understood that he was pointing toward the northern side of Israel. Israel was predominantly in two halves. The southern named Judea is where Jerusalem was, and the northern was characterized by the Sea of Galilee, or Gennesaret. And this is where Jesus started his ministry um, years before this incident. And this is also where the disciples we've been kind of walking with, Peter, James, and John, this is, this is their hometown. This is where they were raised. This is where they work. This is what they were familiar with. And this is where they were. And so we're told in verse uh, 2, several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana, which is also a region of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. So we have seven disciples, five of them named. And they're sitting there, they're waiting, and we, we would probably be good for us to remind ourselves a little bit of what their attitude must have been like. This is, it must have been restless, no longer hopeless, but unsure of what direction to take, what was going to come. See, Jesus had died, and, but he had also risen. He had, uh, in, in spite of their initial disbelief, he had demonstrated, he had revealed himself to them. And in one account, we're told that he revealed himself after some of them disbelieved and he let them touch him, which caused Thomas to step back. And once he recognized it was Jesus, he declared, my Lord and my God, which is an amazing thing. But this, 
this, this would happen in such a way that the, the, the fact is that the disciples went from a, a place of emotion of just despair. They, have, they had known and seen the, the brutality of the cross. The darkness that had enveloped the entire scene. Jesus had died. And that had now given way to the amazing fact that Jesus had resurrected. Light has shined once again, which is a great reminder for you and I. The Easter, if nothing else, it signifies that dark need not reign indefinitely. Light will shine. Light will shine. He has risen. And, and yet he would do this where Jesus would appear in a room. He would forget to open and close the door. He would just appear in their midst and discuss with them, talk with them, and then in the same way disappear without any real direction, without any real instruction. One piece was to go to Galilee and wait for him, but there wasn't anything else to it. There was just a little bit of a restless, not knowing what's happening. And they were oftentimes somewhat startled and struck with awe. It was unsettling and yet wondrous all at the same time. Each time Jesus appeared, it was, it was unpredictable, not knowing what was, when, how this would happen once again. And in the midst of this, as they are waiting by the Sea of Galilee, we're told in verse 3 that Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. That's it. I'm going to go fishing. And the rest said, we'll come too, they said. They all said. And so they did. They, they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. They caught nothing all night, which is uh, just amazing. See, it's almost as if finally Peter decided that it was enough. It, it was en enough of this just doing nothing. See, Jesus had instructed them to go to Galilee and wait, but at one point you almost get the sense they were thinking, you know, how long should we do nothing before it becomes a bit foolish? Because they hadn't been working for at least three years. They hadn't been providing, and we know they had responsibilities. Peter especially had mouths to feed, and so there's pressure to be able to provide, to be able to do something. And so he decides to go back to what he knew. He gets ready to go fishing. The rest of the, the, the remaining six say, we'll join you. And it was at night, they go out to the shore, and they go out to the sea, and they, they fish all night, and nothing. They catch nothing. Which is almost as if heaven is saying, you will not find your future by going back to your past. You will not find direction, clarity, how to move forward by turning around and engaging what you once knew so well. It's a different way here. The sea was barren. And these aren't just men going out fishing as a hobby. These are men who had done this as a career. This was their living. They, had, they were experts in the craft. And the entire night, not one fish was caught. Which would mean that not only are they now unsettled, frustrated, but by the end of this venture, they are most likely very hungry and tired. And we're told that in verse 4, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. And he called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. No, it was a bad night. No, no, don't, uh, don't remind us. 
And then he said, throw out the net on the right side of the boat and you'll get some. Having nothing left to lose, they're at the end of their night, their venture, they're tired, they're hungry. Why not? So they did. And they threw the net on the right side of the boat and they couldn't haul in the net because they, there were so many fish in it. This is, this is an amazing picture. It's, it's, only, it's like Jesus knew where the fish were. The right side of the boat. Which is interesting, right? It's like, what were they only sticking to the left? But he knew where they were in the time, in the window of an opportunity. He says, no, right now, if you throw it on the right, you will catch them. And they do. And it's almost as if the fish swim into the net. Like, finally, let's go. You know, and they go in there. And, and all of a sudden, the, they can't haul it in. It's so many. They start trying. They can't. And in the midst of them, just recognizing this is an amazing catch. This is unbelievable. They're trying. They're struggling. John, he catches on to what's happening. Perhaps he's reminded of how this whole thing started when Jesus first invited them to toss the net into the sea and catch some fish after a different night that didn't catch anything. In John, he says in verse 7, then the disciple Jesus loved, which is his way of, of talking about himself, which is a great, I mean, that he is strong in his identity, Right? The disciple Jesus loved, that's great. He says, so myself, basically, he's saying. He says to Peter, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, having worn only a loincloth, for he, was, he had stripped for work, jumped into the water and headed into the shore. And, and he just makes his way to Jesus. And, and here's the thing, the intuitive the, the intuitive John, who oftentimes saw things about Jesus others missed, caught on quickly, and he knew this was no ordinary man calling to us from the shore. This is, this is Jesus himself, once again, right here in our midst. And let's make no mistake of it. He must have been so excited to see Jesus. He must have been filled with such a desire. See, John, we know, he could have. He could have said nothing. He could have discovered, understood who he was looking at, jumped into the water himself. No one would have understood what's going on. He would have made his way to shore before the disciples figured it out. He would be the first to talk to the master. And we know this about John because he's fiercely competitive. Now, how do we know this? Well, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Him and his brother and his mom came to Jesus and said, we have, we have a desire, we have a request. Would you put us on your right and your left hand, the, the greatest places of power in your kingdom? This is our mission statement, the Zebedee mission statement. <laughs> to be at your right and your left. Will you fulfill it for us? No shame. No shame whatsoever. Yes, I would like to be in the most powerful place in your kingdom. That, that was John. That was John. And yet something of Jesus' way starts to penetrate John's personality. And it's, this is no small thing. Because John knows who it is before anyone else. And he doesn't take it for himself. It's almost as if John would be sitting there and something of 
Jesus' love starts to transform him. We see it, something of a trickle starts to form, and it, we know it ends up dominating who he is later in his life. But it begins to emerge. It starts to change and shift him, transform him. And he, what happens is he, we see it, almost hear it, an internal dialogue with John. John recognizes it's him, but he says almost, no, I, I will not take this blessing for myself. No, my, my brother who is wounded, who is recovering, who's hurting, he needs this more. Uh, Peter, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Go. It's amazing. Peter puts on his tunic, jumps into the water in the dark of the morning dawn, and the coldness of it must have woken him up once again, and yet it could not in any way overshadow or overcome the excitement and the passion inside of him. He wanted to get to the master. And he makes his way. He decides, I'm going to talk to Jesus. I'm going to get there. And as he does this, verse 8, we're told that the other stayed with the boat and pulled the, load, the loaded net to the shore for they were only about 100 yards from the shore, about a football field's length away. And when they got there, they found breakfast. Look at this scene that's just unraveled before us. This is amazing. They found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. Go ahead. If we could see the scene before us, Peter makes his way to the shore. He would be the first to get there. And as he gets there, he, he starts to get up. And what does he, he hears the crackling of a fire. He smells the, the fish, the aroma, and the bread, and he sees it. Jesus has prepared a meal for them. And it's almost as if Jesus is tending to the meal after they are making their way. He looks to Peter and he says, go get some fish that you just caught. Some of the fish I just pointed you, go get some. And we would miss this too, by the way, if, if we, we would miss this. But John actually uses a particular word to describe the fire. It, it's the word charcoal. And it may not mean much to us, but it would be one of the only two times used in the entire New Testament. It'd be the second time because the first time John would use it to describe the fire by which Peter was warming himself the night he would deny Jesus three times. And that charcoal fire defined his failure. This charcoal fire would define the beginning of his restoration. That charcoal fire would be in the night. This would be the beginning of a new day. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Exactly how he was setting this up. What, he knew what he wanted to have. He knew what he wanted to underline in Peter's life. And as this is happening, Peter turns around. He says, okay, I will get some fish. And John says, so Simon Peter went aboard. He went back to the boat, went aboard and dragged the net with the other men and, and the net to shore. And there were 153 large fish. And yet the net hadn't torn. It's almost as if it's like, wow, such a trivial detail. 153 large fish, which just like, why, why did you do that? But we know. That if there are traumatic events in our lives, or if there are amazing events in our lives, it's almost like every single detail is seared into our memory. And we could just, it's like it just happened yesterday. 
Not a thing is lost. Everything is stopped. And we can point to it. We can smell it. We can hear it. In a moment that's so marked and branded them with something of Jesus' love and life for them. Nothing was lost. John, almost 60 years later, some would say, he would be writing, and yeah, they, I remember it. There, was, there were 153 large fish. And it was amazing because the net hadn't torn. It was unbelievable. The net hadn't torn. And it, he says in verse 12, now come. As they do this, they bring the fish to the shore. Now come and, and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples there to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. And this was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. This, this is a unique moment. This is an amazing picture. The Lamb of God, the resurrected Messiah, having breakfast with these blessed seven. <laughs> he, here, has some fish and some bread. And he starts serving them. And all of them are eating in somewhat of an unsettled awe again. No one says a thing. They're just struck with what's happening right in front of them. No one's, let's not touch this. Just absorb it. And yet in the midst of this, we know that there's something of attention growing in, in the crowd. Why? Because there's a conversation that needs to be had. There are words that need to be shared. There is one who needs to be spoken with. And it's almost like everyone is waiting for that. They're on the edge of this moment that will mark them. That they will not easily forget. And they wait. And the master steps into it so gently, so surgically, so precisely. After breakfast in verse 15, we're told that Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these brothers, these friends you have? Do you love me more than this trade you once knew so well? Do you love me more than the product you produce, you bring in? Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, he says. And then a third time he asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Now Jesus asked the question a third time and he says, Lord, you know everything. You know everything about me. All my contradictions, everything. You see me like an open book and yet you know. You know that I love you. You know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Jesus says. 
Frederick Buechner said this conversation was a haunting one because it echoed. It remained. It's not though it was short. It made what it was supposed to make, the mark it was supposed to restore. It, it did everything it was supposed to accomplish. It, it was such a wonderful expression of the Lord's way, the Master's way with us. Because here's, here's the thing. This account, it reminds us so many things. Firstly, it reminds us of the fact that, listen, Jesus' resurrection meant Peter's restoration. The simple fact of the matter is no resurrection, no restoration. The conversation would have never been had. And the final moment that Jesus would have with Peter, Peter would have with Jesus, would be a moment in which Jesus would look at him straight in the eyes, having denied him three times. A moment of utter failure, disappointment that would have marked him with shame the rest of his days. And yet Jesus did not permit it to be so. He goes out of his way and he has a conversation, sets a scene that reminds him of what happens. Three times he asks him to reaffirm what three times he had denied. And three times he reinstates him into the post and position, the role and responsibility that three times he had abandoned. Everyone knew he was the designated leader. And Jesus made sure he restored his relationship first, and he restored Peter's role second. Do you love me? Yeah. Yes. Okay, we're good. I want you to feed. You see it. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful picture of the master's way with us. It's what he longs to do with anyone who would have a conversation with him. Yet I, I believe there are some things we could glean from this account that we might consider for our own lives. And I'm just going to put these up as reflections. Number one, I'm going to say that in life and in, in faith, we will experience seasons of transition. This, is, this, this also reminds us that there will be moments in our lives where we may have had a place of expertise in a certain way, or maybe we may be accustomed to a certain way of doing things, and yet we sense God asking us to no longer go there and to move somewhere else. And we haven't gone to the place yet where we feel as comfortable as we once did there. There's this in-between place. This transition, and this definitely happens in life. I mean, with the passing of years, transitions happen in our natural way of living. And yet it also happens in our faith with God. That there are moments in which he invites us to think about moving out of what he, he, he might invite us to move out of what we feel most comfortable in. And that there, that place where we feel awkward, we, in some ways we feel stripped of our defense mechanisms, everything we used as our point of confidence, everything we leaned on, maybe it's not there. And right there is where God longs to actually produce a degree of healing, a degree of affirmation, a degree of repositioning us for where he is sending us. You see it. We cannot go back sometimes to what we once knew so well because God has a different way for us to pursue. 
I just wonder how many of us, there might be certain things, practices, pursuits, social environments, ways of being, hobbies even, that we have enjoyed for many times, many years, and it has been a source of life for us, and yet it may not be even bad in nature, it may be good, and yet God might say, you know what, for this season I want you to reserve your energy from that and pour it into something else. I wonder. What transitions? And a lot of times, God may actually, our road through transformation starts in restoration. It starts in redefining. No, we are not defined by, by what we did or by certain things we thought defined us or by our strengths that we used to th- lean on so heavily or the things that we used to be able to get away with. And it, it was our cover. It was our defense. And yet, there... When those things give way and those things are no longer doing what they once did, Jesus longs to have a conversation. Now that I have your attention, they're designed to do what? To bring us to him. So that he can then restore a strong sense of his identity for us, his love for us. He is the one that carries us through those transitions, those points of frustration, those points of vulnerability. It is his way. It is his way. And yet, it also shows us what that reminds us that secondly, the Lord has both a love for us to confess and a work for us to do. This This is why, by the way, that Paul makes such a big deal in his letter to the Romans. Listen, if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. Why? Because words have power. And they are able to affirm, they are able to reaffirm. And when we speak things out, those words actually not only affect those who hear it, but most definitely they affect us. And so when our words are confessed in terms of a love for Jesus, you know what happens is our own faith in him starts to strengthen and something inside of us starts to become solidified in him. Our confidence grows with a word, a love confessed. A love confessed. And a lot of times it is is just that that he invites us to do. It may be to no one else except to ourselves. It It may mean that we now enter our careers and we step into certain situations and we don't have to tell anyone else, but Lord, I'm gonna do the best I can because I love you. In this relationship where maybe I may not want to show up quite the way you want me to or quite the way I think I need to, I'm going to do it anyway. Why? Because I'm going to say it's probably the most powerful under-the-breath prayer we can ever say, Lord, I will do this because I love you. I love you. That's why. I will keep this commitment because I love you. I, I don't want to, but I will. Because I love you. And yet he seems to unite the two, doesn't he? He, he? he asks, will you do a work as well? And sometimes for us, it may be that it's easier for us to verbalize certain things and what's required. He, he says, you know what? A love confess is only a love, a love half done. He invited Peter to do that, didn't he? He invited Peter to do that. He, there, there's something of an action that ends up rounding out what we say. And sometimes it may be that we are better doers than sayers. And we do things 
well. And we have been provided with opportunities. People may notice certain things. People may comment on certain things. And it is those opportunities where we get to say, yes, it is because of my love for Jesus. Just so you know. That is, it is a love confessed that defines the work done. Others, maybe it's not so much the love confessed that we have a hard time with. It's more the work done that needs to complete the love we have spoken of. See, Jesus says, do you love me? And then he says, will you work for me? Will you work for me? I wonder what that might look like for us. In John's case, it looked like taking a step back and giving somebody else the blessing. Are there people in our lives that maybe the tact we have taken is that we are the first to attain? And maybe the Lord is saying, you know what? I have pe people around you that are waiting for you to allow me to give them the blessing. For you to think of them above than yourself. Go. Go, get it, get it for yourself, and that is my joy. He has a love for us to confess, a work for us to do. What may that look like? When we start to wrestle there, the rubber meets the road. We start to get traction in what it looks like to transform, in, in what it looks like for him to transform us. And thirdly, it, it reminds us that before we will ever be able to adequately feed Anyone in his name, we must first let him feed us. We must be fed. This, this requires a degree of humility, doesn't it? It requires a degree of surrender. We have to learn how to feed ourselves. This what is this a reminder of? It's a reminder of the private, internal, intentional conversation of cultivating a love for Jesus. It's a reminder that, um, that a lot of times what's required is not a desire to do good in his name. Many times we may. We may desire to do good in his name. And it, it may be frustrating. And at times, the reason it may be frustrating is because we have forgotten the principle. First, we must be fed. First, we must learn how to cultivate a habit, a discipline of eating his word. Of reading it and hearing his voice for us. Because why? It's not just that Jesus has a word for us to say. Here's the deal. He may have a word for us to, to hear. He may have a word for us to say to somebody else. He may not just have a word for us to receive. He may have a word for us to share with those around us. And yet, we, we may actually know exactly what's needed to be said. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you know the answer. You know what can be said, but why is it missing what we know it should have, the power it should have? Why? Because a lot of times what's required is that we need to be able to speak the words we can actually say, I have heard Jesus speak to me. And when it is sincere and genuine and it is authentic and we have received it for ourselves, can you see how, how much of a difference that would make? To be able to say, listen, I have received his forgiveness. I have heard it. I have point, been in my point of failure, and he has restored me. He has washed me. He has cleansed me. He has wrapped me with his love, and he has not let me go. And I think in this situation, you need to know that. How many times, I wonder, is it not so much a lack of people around us as much as it is for us to be very quick to jump out of the boat, swim to shore, and have breakfast with Jesus?
Because remember how this all began. Jesus said, come and eat. Come and eat. And then what do you say? Go and feed. Go and feed. Come and eat. Receive. And now go and give away. It's a great picture of what life with God looks like. Which, by the way, it reminds us of the importance, not just of the private life, but of the communal life. You see, we sometimes need a John to point Jesus out to us. The small group environment is, is so huge for us to be able to learn and be reminded. Let's slow down. Let's double check some things. How is our private life going? How is the internal life going? Let's journal a little bit. What are you saying to me, Lord? What is the word you're speaking to me? What is the courage you want to build into me? What is the affirmation you want, to, you want me to own for myself? Because one day, there may be a person to our right or to our left that Jesus might say, now you feed them. And who is that? Who are those people? That God may want to speak words of life through us. <laughs> this, this is the great invitation. This is the great result of everything we celebrated in Easter weekend. It is not a one weekend of the year. It is an every day of the year event. He longs to feed us, restore us, heal us, strengthen us, reposition us, and then send us to participate in his life-transforming work in other people's lives. What, what a privilege. May this be the case. May we receive what he may want to say. May we receive his life and his love, his affirmation, his restoration. And may he use us to do that in somebody else's life. May this be the case. We're in a moment going to have our time of giving and the band's going to come closing a final song reminding us of his love that never lets go. But I'd like to just pray and ask for his blessing. Perhaps you may want to underline, highlight some things. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that uh, we get to see that those around you had real weaknesses, real contradictions, just like us. And more so, we get to see that you tenaciously love them as you do us. You didn't allow a rupture in relationship to go unaddressed. You restored it. You healed. And then you, you, you love to send out the wounded to heal other wounded. I pray, God, that if any of us may may have a desire, a need to hear your love affirmed once again, that you would give us the courage to confess it and also to hear it for ourselves. I pray, God, that uh, your, rest, your restoration would occur in our soul and that you would give us the privilege of learning how to eat with you, be fed by you, and then getting to see you feed others through us. We pray for this, God. We ask for your life-giving spirit to flow here in your house. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.